Good morning, Calvary Baptist Church. It's nice to see you. Hopefully you survive the freezing cold temperatures that are upon us. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39, a passage which Pastor Matt quoted as a benediction for us at the end of last week's sermon. And I think we'll hopefully tie in a little bit to what Solomon has talk, been talking to us about with respect to what is meaningful in this life for Christians. So Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and we have your word here, and we are your people. And we ask that your spirit would move among us, that as your word is proclaimed, our hearts would be transformed. And Lord, I ask that love would grow. Some of us are hard people, Lord. We need your love to transform how we live in this world how we see our life, how we see our fellow man. So I pray that you would do a work of the Spirit even now. Soften our hearts. Help us to experience the joy that comes with serving others and not ourselves. We ask this for Christ's name. Amen. There's two points that I'd like to hammer home this morning. The first one is that in Christ you are beloved. And the second point I want to get across is that nothing can separate you from this love. My hope is that the Holy Spirit will strengthen you as we dwell on this text this morning in front of us. Some of you may need to hear that you can be confident in God, that you can and ought to be persuaded and not to doubt, that you can be sure. I pray that the Spirit will drive this home. Some of you may need to hear that your particular trial is not too much for our Lord. He can overcome it. It's not your strength, but His. Some of you may need to hear that God truly loves you. You are, of course, like me, a chunk of coal, truly unlovely, and yet you are loved. Yes, we can say it confidently here in this place this morning. God has a peculiar affection for you. Soak it in. Some of you may need to hear once more that God's love comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That is to say, it is not an impersonal love. It's not abstract. You have confidence not in a chair or in gravity, but in a person. So let's begin with this peculiar phrase you see there in verse 38. I am sure, or as some versions have it, I am persuaded. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself what it is you find persuasive? 
What convinces you? Is it a good argument? A man or a woman of character? A vivid experience? Or maybe an amazing presentation? In our passage in Romans, Paul begins with what I hope you will see is a kind of shocking or unusual statement, both in the context of the first century in the Greco-Roman world, but also really for us here in the 21st century in the West. For both Greeks and Romans, Paul's confidence was folly. The Greeks would have said, and do you remember when they actually did explicitly say to him that he was a babbler? What was he babbling about that caused these Greeks to mock him? The resurrection. Look again here at Romans 8.38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life can separate you from the love of God. Your death cannot separate you from God's love. Neither can your life. Notice that Paul begins with resurrection power. God's love transcends death and brings life through death and the grave. And for the Greeks, and really to some degree for the Hebrews of his day, the underworld, the place of death, is not really a pleasant existence unless you're this exceptionally pure of heart person. The key feature is that no one gets back from Hades. For Paul to claim that he is secure in God's love on the basis of the resurrection of Christ is a non-starter for Greek thinking. But here in our passage, Paul signals this folly as the first item in his list. Or put it another way, the Greeks counted on being separated from their loved ones, but they held out this hope that eventually they would be reunited in this dark, gloomy underworld where they could all suffer together. Paul's claim is the reverse. He cannot be separated from God's love in his death because Christ himself descended and was raised up. The Romans, they also would have considered Paul's statement to be folly, but perhaps for a very different reason. They would have looked at Paul and said, you, sir, are cursed. Look at your life, Paul. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, jailed, scorned, abandoned. Is this representative of the love of the gods? Your God, Paul, seems to revile you, not love you. They would have found it very bizarre that Paul could move from the statement, we are all led like sheep to be slaughtered, do you see it there in front of you, to the conclusion that nothing can separate me from God's love. Those don't seem to match. These Romans would object to the quote you see in our passage. It's from Psalm 44, verse 22, in which the psalmist cries out to God on the basis of God's unfailing love. The Roman would say, unfailing love, Paul? Do you not have it backwards? Is your nation not at its lowest as this backwater province of the mighty Roman Empire? Paul, surely this is folly. Are you not in chains? Now, what about today in our contemporary Western culture? Yes, it too sees folly in our confidence, but really from two completely different directions. On the one hand, and maybe you can put yourself in one of these camps, or, or not if you want to be you know, stubborn this morning. You decide. But on the one hand, the 21st century is gripped by a thirst for tangible evidence, for facts with a capital F, for measurable, quantifiable data. For the materialists, Paul's statement is impossible to verify. It's full of logical contradictions. How can life 
separate you from God's love. What are these powers or principalities and how can you know that they exist, Paul? Aren't they just a figment of your imagination or your own desire to retain power or control? How can height or depth separate you from an invisible, intangible being? God isn't on Mars or in a galaxy far, far away. In other words, Paul's confidence is rooted in a debunked authority that is no longer relevant. So say our materialists. But the other impulse in our day also finds Paul's conception of love to be foolish. Remember what they say? Love is whatever feels good to you. Self-fulfillment, self-realization, self-expression. These are the things that ought to generate our confidence. The Bible uses another term for this modern attitude, and it's not very endearing. Self-love. Now, if our contemporaries rewrote this verse, it might come out as follows. Nothing can separate you from being true to yourself. Not your government, nor society, nor your teachers, not even your parents. The trouble, of course, is that this breeds a, f- a false or weak or a fragile confidence. Put another way, we are seeing in our day, in our own nation, the distinct lack of confidence that such a philosophy breeds. Our identities are frail. They shift from year to year. They ebb and flow with our emotional state. The next generation is filled to bursting with anxieties of every kind. Personal anxiety, social anxiety, this one's skyrocketing by the way, Worry about the climate, housing, jobs, inflation, crime, drugs, friends and family, competition in the workplace, war. And when you look around, or if you watch the news, can you really blame them for being anxious? Ought we to cultivate confidence in ourselves? No. Brothers and sisters, we ought not to go that way. We need something stronger to hold on to than ourselves. Because our love is not strong enough. And truly, we need to be held by something stronger than ourselves, because our grip is not strong enough. Let's look back again at this word persuaded in verse 38. I want you to notice a few details about it that we might be tempted to pass over. Some versions have, I am sure, or I am convinced, or I am certain. As far back, really, as Euripides or Aeschylus and even Homer in the 8th century, this family of words is used to express trust, reliance, or belief. And due to its long use over time, it became a colloquial expression. Just as in French we say, s'il vous plaît, which means please, right? It actually means if it pleases you. Kind of clunky, but the French are, well... My apologies. (laughs) The Greek word here, persuaded, papesmai, means I am sure, but it too has this clunky grammatical rendering. I have been persuaded. Paul is emphasizing two important things, which I hope will really encourage you this morning. First, the action of the verb is complete and simple. In other words, Paul is not talking about something in the past nor is he talking about an ongoing debate in his heart and mind about God's love. Does God love me? He is sure, and it is settled for him. Second, he's emphasizing a certain amount of passivity. 
that helps us understand the nature of faith or persuasion. Paul's not just saying, I believe that nothing can separate me from God's love. It's not merely an act of his own mind or heart or volition. He's also saying, I have been prompted to believe. Now, I admit, again, sort of awkward in English. Paul is both doing the action and it is being done to him. That's why this translation, I am persuaded, sounds funny to our ears, but it really captures the tension really well. I bring it up here because it's worth highlighting what lies at the root of faith or belief or persuasion. Consider how you would go about persuading yourself to do something dangerous or something outside your comfort zone. How do you come to repent? How are you convinced to change your mind? When you look back at that moment or the operation in your heart and mind, you'll notice that you both actively participated and were convinced by some objective fact or person. Keep climbing the ladder, Todd, you can do it. Just one rung at a time is met with this passive sense that the ladder is sturdy, it's at the proper angle at the wall, and even maybe a trust in the person that built the ladder. They knew what they were doing. Those engineers, right? I recall actually one time when I was working construction some years ago, I was climbing a really long ladder to reach this awkward intersection of drywall and cinder block. Now my job was to seal it up so there's no gap between the material. And we didn't have a scissor lift there. We didn't have any scaffolding. It was probably a code violation. But here I am, 6.30 p.m. in Thunder Bay, just trying to get this job done so my boss and I can return to Kitchener. I'm climbing 50 feet high up into this high school atrium. Now, I was pretty experienced at height works by that point in my life. I'd hung off the, the high rises in downtown Toronto. But let me tell you, each step I took was a test of my confidence. I could feel doubt manifesting itself in my nervous system. Do you know what I mean by that? That strange feeling of paralysis as you're going up. No matter how much your mind urges you on in that moment, your body physically rejects the command to climb another rung. No matter what I did, I couldn't convince myself to go further. And for me, this experience is a vivid evidence of the dual nature of persuasion. I am an active participant when I trust or doubt and I'm beholden to something beyond myself that shapes my attitude and shapes my attention. All true therapy or salesmanship operates in much the same way. How did that big screen TV come to be installed in your living room? Oh no. How did that argument with your wife come to a resolution? How did you come to see things her way? How did she come to see it yours? The ladies are laughing because they know that <laughs> one of those statements is true. <laughs> you actively participated in it, and it happened to you simultaneously. Now, before we move forward and look at the things that Paul is persuaded about, I just want to toss a lifeline to anyone here who may be a doubting Thomas. All right, you, you strict materialists out there. Maybe like me, you have that critical eye or this habit of doubt. Maybe like one half of our culture, you cry out, unless I put my fingers where the nails were, I won't believe. 
Maybe you doubt God's love for you even now. Hear Jesus' words on this posture or attitude. Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. The evidence of his love is written in his hands and side. Thomas is a witness to all of us with this empirical soul. He asked that question and he was answered. He was given the evidence. But notice our Lord's command to those with such a nature. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting. There is a world for our weary culture, is it not? You can have true confidence in Christ, and it will give you so much peace in this world. Let's turn our attention back to Romans 8 and look at the rest of this sentence in verse 38, piece by piece. I am persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And notice that Paul expands on what that nothing entails. It turns out to be quite a list of things that threaten separation. Clearly, on the one hand, Paul is catching at extremes and, and doing a little bit of a literary flourish. In Greek, there's this little word, word ute, which appears before each item in the list. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor authorities, nor power, nor present things, nor things that will be, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And notice the similarity between this list and the one a few verses earlier in verse 35. Here, in our passage, it's a negation, but in verse 35, a little earlier, we encounter this rhetorical question where the operative word's not nor, but or. Do you see it there? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Can you hear these ors and these nors piling up in each sentence? It makes Paul's confidence bear a heavier and heavier weight with each additional item. Now, the list in 35 focuses on these practical effects of our fallen or hostile world, such as brokenness that leads to personal distress, suffering, loss of freedom, endangerment, or shame. And notice how Christ himself suffered each of these practical effects in verse 35. Jesus, tribulations of all kinds, distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, persecuted by the religious elite, naked on the cross, endangered by storms and plots, subject to the armed guards of Herod, the Sanhedrin, and the Romans. Hold on a second. What about famine? Did Jesus suffer a famine? Well, not exactly, but do you remember his temptation? In the wilderness before Jesus' ministry, Jesus quotes Moses to the devil, saying, Man doth not live by bread alone. Now, this is a reference to Israel's humbling experience, 40 years in perpetual state of famine, roaming the desert, sustained only by what? God's provision of manna before they entered the promised land. Christ, in 40 days, walked the same path, but he received no manna. Instead, he was tempted at his weakest and his lowest. Have you ever fasted for 40 days? I think I've maybe four hours. Anyone's done four hours? It's a long time, right? Have you ever wondered why Satan does not appear in the Garden of Gethsemane or at the cross? 
but he shows up here in the desert? In the 17th century, the poet John Milton wrote this famous epic poem, Paradise Lost. It's about Adam and Eve and the fall. But he also wrote a sequel called Paradise Regained, which is about Christ, and it focuses most of its attention on this scene in the wilderness. It's less well known, but here's a little piece where Jesus is responding to the devil. Thinkest thou such force in bread? Is it not written? For I discern thee other than thou seemst. Man lives not by bread only, but each word proceeding from the mouth of God. Who fed our fathers here with manna? In the mount, Moses was 40 days, nor ate nor drank. And 40 days, Eliah, without food, wandered this barren waste. The same I now. Why dost thou then suggest to me distrust, knowing who I am, as I know who thou art? For me, Milton saw the connection between Christ, Moses, and Elijah in their wanderings, and saw, too, Christ's obedience at the beginning of his ministry, not in the garden, tempted by a serpent, but in this barren world devoid of paradise. I think Milton also captured Christ's confidence in the Father's plan. Did you hear that little line? Why dost thou then suggest to me distrust? Satan is in the business of sowing doubt. Did God really say? And doubt is a place of famine, isn't it? It's this spiritual dryness where no spiritual fruit can grow. Our Lord suffered through this, not because he doubted God, but on behalf of us, his people, as our representative. So, Christian, if you're feeling that barrenness in your soul, that famine of heart, listen to our Lord and turn to him. For he told us, I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. So much for a brief consideration of these personal sufferings that Paul outlines in verse 35. Let's look at 38 again. Paul has in view something more philosophical. This list is all the categories of reality, if you like. The things that give rise to our existence or control it. Death and life. Power, whether angelic or earthly powers. Maybe the dynamics of the cosmos, the swirling powers of nature and the universe. Time, space, created things as opposed to God as the eternal uncreated one. The main thing for us to see this morning is that God's love is not one of these things. It's not a force like gravity or electromagnetism. It's not beholden to authorities on earth nor is it controlled by heavenly beings. It's not affected by space. Sometimes we say, I feel far from God, right? But Paul, remember when he was talking to those Greeks who were mocking him? He said, he is near to each one of us. God's love does not grow weak with distance. There's no out of sight, out of mind, for you are never out of God's sight. Remember what the psalmist said, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Your right hand will hold me fast. God's love does not change with time. It is eternally fresh. It never expires like milk or bread. Or uh, as my daughter Hannah said to me, 
like hot dogs, Dad. And I thought to myself, oh no, if your hot dogs are starting to go moldy in your fridge, something has gone desperately wrong, right? <laughs> God is now. It is you and I who are moored in time. As Paul says in Corinthians, love never ends. It's not a created thing. Think of it. God's love toward you did not come into being, even though you yourself did. Scripture puts it another way. Jeremiah 31 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Ephesians 1 adds to that, that you were chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined in love. Indeed, Paul deploys the same sort of list when he's addressing the believers at Ephesus. In verse 17 to 18 of Ephesians 3, he writes, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Breadth, length, height, depth of what? Of love. Grounded in love, Christians are on this journey to explore the full extent of it. And his point really is the same in Ephesians as it is in Romans. We don't have the capacity to measure God's love. It's not that sort of thing. Unlike us, it is immune to the weight scale. So far, we've seen two things in this passage. First, the nature of persuasion or confidence. Both us acting and being acted upon. And second, that Paul's confidence, nothing in our experience, nor any of the authorities or powers or shaping forces that make experience possible, none of these things can separate Paul from God's love. I want to take another step, though, and show you that Paul considers God's love and Christ's love to be the same. Or put another way, you experience God's love in the person and work of our Lord. Now, this is important because it means that God's love for you can be translated into your world. It can be experienced in relation to you. It is not of this world, and yet it comes to us here. What is this love? Here and throughout the New Testament, we find the Greek word agape, which you perhaps already know. But I want to linger over this idea with you for a few minutes together. It probably comes down to the first century common Greek of Paul's day from this really old Athenian word for too much or excess or more. You know what little kids say all the time? Or, or the birds, the seagulls on the beach? They're saying, love, love, love. No, not quite. The thing you love is the thing you are fond of or prefer to everything else. It's the thing you have settled on. It is dear to you. You will not give it up. Think of Gollum's precious in The Lord of the Rings. In some ways, it's related to one of these other Greek words for love, phileo, which describes an emotional attachment like delighting in a friend. But this word agape goes down deeper. It's a settled conviction. It includes delight in the range of emotions that we normally associate with the things we care about, but it actually infects our will, and it infects our judgment. We feel an obligation toward the things we love. Love, in this sense, is a choice. 
But I want to be clear, it's not a choice in the way our contemporary culture thinks about choice. You see, in our day, we emphasize only the part of agape that is shared with phileo. We think of choice as a reflection of our circumstances, of our emotional experience. Certainly, sometimes individuals rise to really heroic and selfless acts. But what is in view in Scripture when the New Testament authors talk about love is a steady, firm, stable preference on the part of God toward his people. Remember the description in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, or as some of the older English translations put it, love suffereth long. Now, you and I can love this way only for a short time, and then we break down or we run out of emotional capacity. Eventually, unless you're some superhuman, your kids will drive you nuts, and you prefer to toss them all into their bedrooms and lock the door and have some peace. That didn't happen this week, (laughs) but it could have. Eventually, your spouse will fail you. Just wait a day or two. Now, what I mean by this is not that we ought not to make vows and commit to one another, but rather that our preferences and commitment is not always attended by delight. For God, however, it's a very different story. Scripture says God is love. Let's take a look at that passage together to pair it alongside this piece from Romans. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. First John 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ten times, John uses this word agape here. For John, love in the life of the Christian is proof of God's presence. God's love is revealed in the sending of Jesus so that we might have life, so that our sins might be propitiated. It's the gospel story, of course. It is familiar territory for our ears and our hearts. But look closer. Did you catch how John opened his statement there? See that word beloved? The adjective is also that word agape. And it becomes one of the more common ways to address believers in the early church. It's used nearly 60 times in the New Testament epistles alone. Listen for this word, beloved, as I read a handful of the passages in quick succession. You ready? Mark 9, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Acts 15, 25. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them, with, and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Philemon 1.1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, 
our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Hebrews 6, 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. James 2, 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And Jude 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So, Mark, Luke, Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, even the writer to the Hebrews, all united in this pattern of speech, beloved. And I only read, what, 10 of them? I don't know. Notice God himself at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Consider the implications of this attitude of the father towards the son. God prefers and delights in Jesus. God's delight in Jesus is the basis for his delight in you. Or put another way, God calls you beloved because he first called Christ beloved. And you cannot be loved of God outside of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, we receive these glimpses or pictures of the final delight of God in his Son, but it's always intermixed with this righteous disdain or wrath. Jacob I have loved is tied to what? Esau I have hated. And do you remember Jacob's life? He spends the whole thing contending and wrestling with God. Hosea is told to take an unfaithful woman as his wife and to love her. David, we are told, is a man after God's own heart, but his life is marred by murder, adultery, and trouble. Despite all of this, David understood that a right relationship with God is not abstract. It's not this obedience or ritual sacrifice, but delight in a person, confidence in God. What could merit God's delight and attention? Only his true beloved. Now, in Christ, God can rightly say that we are his beloved. But let's take it one step further. Remember that odd phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved? It shows up in John's gospel account, both uh, chapter 13, verse 23, but also a little later in chapter 21, verse 20. And it's a reference to the apostle John himself. John, this apostle, was marked out in Jesus' life as a person he took special delight in. Not at the expense of the other disciples, but with the very natural human experience of intimacy. And I don't mean, as our world frequently does, something immoral or sexual. It's that intimate connection of friends, people who know each other, enjoy each other's company, who get to know each other's jokes, who take delight in each other's smile, who disclose or submit their concerns or fears, or maybe their inner thoughts to one another. You might think that sounds like favoritism to me, Jesus. You got this one guy, John. We have it backwards in this instance. John is one of the types of the beloved. Christ, while he was with them, it's very natural that as any other human being, he would have his own preferences. 
He chose a certain number of disciples, and out of those grew up this inner circle that stayed with him through the transfiguration. But after his death and resurrection, this sense of being the disciple whom Jesus loved is communicated by the Holy Spirit to all of us. That's why Jesus could rightly say, it's better that I go. The Holy Spirit seals us all with that lifelong, steady, firm delight of God toward us in Christ. You, sitting there in this chair this morning, are the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you sense his delight for you? Some of us, I I think, uh, might feel kind of awkward or maybe shameful about it. To be loved by God, despite my deeply flawed nature, to have him bothering about me or interested in my well-being, who am I? Remember that line from Wesley's hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Wesley knew it. How is this possible? But this is really Scripture's wonderful revelation to us all. And it should give you confidence, like Paul, to proclaim that in Christ, nothing can separate you from this love. Now, I want to close this morning with one basic appeal or a call to action based on what you were just reading now in Romans and John and our musings about this status of beloved. Prefer one another. Delight in one another. Don't prefer yourself. Don't delight in yourself. Prefer one another. One of the stranger developments within the church in our day, maybe you've seen this, the mixture of callousness and warmth that seems to really mark the Western church. Perhaps this is in part due to the forms of communication that we use or that we engage in as society, which amplify our gossip or our discontent or apply pressure to seek out the approval of my fellow man. Now, certainly, we ought to encourage obedience to Christ and hold believers to account to obey Christ's command in our lives. So maybe some of those tweets are okay. If you asked a fellow believer what obedience to Christ means, what do you think they would tell you? What command did Jesus give to his disciples? In John 14, 15, we hear Jesus saying, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there is no question that obedience is a sign of the love of God in our lives. But do you remember what it was that Jesus himself commanded? Let me get you to turn to it one more time. John 13, 34. I really want you to see this with your own eyes this morning. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. Okay, we're ready. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice why this commandment is new. Up to this point in history, nearly all the cultures of the Mediterranean would have more or less agreed with Christ's summing up of the law in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Do you remember? 
teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Isocrates, an ancient Greek rhetorician, born in 430 BC, put it this way. Do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. Epictetus, the Stoic, 50 AD, do unto others whatever you would like them to do to you. Even Confucius reportedly had a very similar phrase. We call this the golden rule. But Jesus does not tell his disciples in our passage here to simply continue obeying the golden rule. In John 13, he gives them a new command. Do you see it there? Look closely. Love others as I have loved you. As I have preferred and delighted in you over and over again. As I gave myself up for you. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater proclamation, no winsome, rational argument that can surpass normal, everyday Christians preferring one another, day by day, week by week. You do not love others because of the principle of karma or reciprocity. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? You are turning your eyes away from yourself and you are seeking to serve. You're placing the needs of others ahead of your own. This is not the sort of attitude that says, I love you, but I just need time to discover who I am and to take care of myself. It is delighting in the other and losing sight of yourself. Don't you see? Without Christ in you, affirming you as his beloved, you cannot continually give yourself to others. You must be persuaded as you see Christ dying for you that nothing can separate you from that sort of love, which goes far beyond mere affection or desire. And you must be persuaded that you can share it. As Jonathan Edwards said in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, and I'll close with this, do not make an excuse that you have not opportunities to do anything for the glory of God, for the interest of the Redeemer's kingdom, and for the spiritual benefit of your neighbors. If your heart is full of love, it will find vent. You will find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we trust, even though sometimes we do not feel it, that we are your beloved. How could you love us? We, we look to Christ. And we see there all that is lovely, all that is worthy of affection, and we cling to him. Lord, teach us to look away from ourselves and to live with his power, that power of love which enables us to serve brothers and sisters here. Look at us, Lord. We are your people. Would you please produce that love in our hearts today? For Christ's sake, amen.